morning. Uh, today's reading is Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favour all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Yar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of your sons, one of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, I shall teach them. Their sons shall forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Amen. You are our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. We ask for your help this morning as we study your word, and be with me now as I open it up. Amen. If you have Psalm 132 there, it would be great if you could keep that open, Um, and that's where we are this morning. And Psalm 132 is one of the Psalms or Songs of Ascent. Um, these psalms or, or songs were psalms sung by the pilgrims, um, ascending the hills to Jerusalem on the feast days. Kind of early Spotify playlist, if you like, of songs that they would have sung as they traveled to Jerusalem. In the early days of the kingdom, Jews were required to come to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate the festival, the festivals of Passover, weeks, and tabernacles. Perhaps you've noticed in your Bibles that you never go down to Jerusalem, you always go up, and Jerusalem was on a hill. And the Psalms of Ascent were sung as the pilgrims ascended these hills, even higher up to the road that led to the holy city. This psalm, as well as Psalm 133 and 134, which are the final trilogy in the Songs of Ascent, have a forward-looking focus. They tell a little bit of what it's going to be like when we get there. What joy and glory awaits for us when we finally arrive in Zion, when these pilgrims finally arrive in Jerusalem, and for us, what awaits for us when we arrive in the new Jerusalem. These are pictures, if you like, of the holiday brochure of the nice hotel that you're going to stay in this summer. You look at them now just to get excited, don't you? To see what's coming as you wait in anticipation. 
they're the ones of golden beaches and turquoise seas that you check when you're stuck in the airport facing five hours delay because Ryanair has cancelled your flight. I'm not bitter in the slightest. Or what you remember when you're being asked for the 50th time, are we there yet? You look at the pictures and you know that it will all be worth it when we get there. This psalm allows us to step inside Jerusalem and inside Zion for a glimpse of where we're going. So what is the psalm all about? Well, it's all about God's plan. God's plan for a king to be the glory of Zion. God's promise that King Jesus reigns in Zion and will forever reign in Zion. Well, why is it that we need assured of this? Because so little of our existence in this world points to that reality, that God will be king reigning forever. We look around and wonder, don't we? Does God really know what he's doing? The monstrosities we're seeing coming out of the war in Ukraine or come closer to home, rising prices of petrol and fuel bills, increasing and increasing, while companies seem to just be reaping in profits. Where is the God for the families you can no longer afford to eat? It's hard to see where God is in all of this. And this is exactly where the psalmist is tapping into. He's trying to assure us that Jesus reigns in Zion, even though our experience here can look so different. And he wants to give us confidence that 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 is where we are going. Christ is reigning secure, safe forever, and therefore will make his people secure and safe forever. The psalm is almost entirely surrendered around uh, the events of 2 Samuel 6 and 7. So if you want a bit of bedtime reading, or if you forgot to get a storybook for the kids tonight, there you go. David is king, and he's won a battle. The battle to capture Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant has been brought to Jerusalem. He wants to build God a house. Look at verse 5 of the psalm. He's wanting to find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He wants to build a temple for God so that the people might see that God is right in the center of their life, right in the center of their midst. And what David desires is good. He wants God to be at the heart of national life. He wants, as it were, raised a banner over the land by the way of saying that this is God's land. This land belongs to God. It's like the Norwegian flag planted at the South Pole after Roald Amnesty's first arrival there. And about a month or so later, Scott the Brit arrived to see the Norwegian flag. They were beaten. The ground was already taken. They'd got it. The Norwegians, we've got it. It's ours. Notice not only how David not, not only does David want to build this house, notice how he wants to build this house. Verse 3 says, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. He will not sleep until this work is done. Now this might be an exaggeration, but clearly there's a passion here. They imply tiredness, exhaustion, and costly living to see this work done. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured in order to see God's kingdom come. David the king goes all in, single-minded determination. He's planned his time, he's reordered his diary, he's rearranged coffee, he's cancelled his Netflix subscription, especially with the prices going up, so that he is intentional in the work that he does for God. So, as a bit of a tangent, maybe now, or preferably once I've finished, is a good opportunity for us to do our own diary check. 
Do we plan around our time and gifts and money in such a way that we're giving our best to God? Please don't misunderstand me. Times of rest and leisure, good times with friends and family, a good film, good food are so important. These verses here aren't advocating burnout, but God has involved us in the greatest building project this world has ever known. So what kind of laborers are we? So David's motives are good, but what is God's response? Well, he says no. God says David's plans aren't enough. God doesn't want David to build a house for him, but instead wants to build David's house to give him a son, Solomon. Verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Why does God turn around on David? Because God knows our greatest need. If the psalm had stopped at verse 10 or in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and God doesn't reply to David, what would have happened? Maybe Solomon builds the temple. Maybe all of that happens in the glory days of Israel do indeed arrive. But what happens next in Israel's history, after the high point of Solomon? After Solomon, David's son, dies, the kingdom of Israel splits in two. And it all begins to spiral from there. Things go from bad to worse. Let me read to you some verses from the end of 2 Chronicles, uh, chapter 36, verse 17. This is what's happening hundreds of years later, but read what happens to the glorious temple that was built. So 2 Chronicles 36, verse 17. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin or old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And here's a key, the key verse, verse 19. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all of its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. Total destruction of the temple, all because of Israel's sin. God's judgment falls on the people and they are taken out of the land. And the temple, the symbol of God's dwelling place with his people, is completely destroyed. God said to David, I know your greatest need. I know that sin is going to see your plans unravel. Thus God says to David, I will build a house for you. Think about this for a moment. Think of the sight that would have greeted the exiles on return from Babylon, 70 years in exile, 70 years out of the land God had promised them. What would it have been like on their return? Picture it, the exiles returning 70 years later from Babylon, singing this very psalm as they went to Jerusalem, singing verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And then verse 14. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Think about all the hope that these images stir. Blessings and abundance. God is there. And as they approach the city, get their first glimpse. And what do they see? Rubble. Destruction. No singing at the gates. No king seated on the throne. The temple is in pieces. It must have looked like God didn't know what he was doing. But God knew what he was doing. And so God replies to David, I will give you an even greater covenant. I will give you an even greater house, an even greater king. 
and I will give you an even greater Jerusalem as well. So God takes David's offering of a house and turns it on its head, giving David an everlasting house, a dynasty, a house that cannot perish or burn like the temple did in Jerusalem. It cannot be a king that cannot that cannot be taken from his throne and a king to sit on God's throne amongst his people here forever. What God does here is like me laying before a car manufacturer some scrap metal and then them returning a Bugatti Veyron. Or taking some driftwood and setting it before a carpenter and the carpenter turns it into a three-story, five-bedroom house. What God gives back is so much greater. While David wants to lay plans before God so that God could be with his people in Jerusalem, God lays plans before David so God could be with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, The Irish biblical scholar uh, J. Alec Mottier, hopefully pronouncing that right, says this. Thus David's plan was turned on its head. The costly work of the human king was turned upside down to become the work of divine grace. And as it turned out, far more costly when the great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, baptized his kingliness in the blood of Calvary. Whatever costliness we know in following Jesus, in the giving of our time, our talents, our money, whatever it is this week, let's not forget God's divine grace. The costliest sacrifice in Jesus giving his life for us on the cross of Calvary, as we celebrated last week at Easter. See, what God is doing here in verses 11 to 18 as he speaks to David, as he's making a way for his king to reign in Jerusalem forever, God knows the needs of his people. And he makes the most glorious and gracious covenant with them to give them a king that will make them secure. But how can we have confidence like this? It struck me when I was babysitting the children of some of my friends that I never once had to speak to them about how to lie when they're caught with the cookie in hand. I never had to speak to any of them about half-truths in order for them to talk to me about them and talk in that way. And I think that no parent will ever intentionally teach their children about speaking in lies or half-truths. Yet children do. We battle to be truth speakers, don't we? We don't battle to be lie-tellers. And wonderfully here we see that this is not so with God. We can have confidence and assurance that where we are heading, God always keeps his word. Verse 14. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but haunt him his crown will shine. This is verses 14 to 17. God will do as he says, and this is what he has said he will do. And for us, even more than the people who first sung the psalm, We can have an assurance that he'll do that because we have Jesus, the long-promised Messiah that these pilgrims longed for and awaited. They were trusting God at at what was at was word for him, weren't they? But as they sung this psalm, as they journeyed to Jerusalem waiting for God's king, they didn't yet have Jesus. However, we do. We can see that God has begun to fulfill these promises in sending his son 2,000 years ago. 
When these pilgrims returned from their exile, they knew that they needed something greater. And as we live our lives in 2022, we know that we have something greater. We have had Jesus come. He's walked amongst us. But the singing of the psalm, the end of the story for us or for them, verse 14 to 18, so wonderfully describes Zion, we're not there yet. The poor aren't satisfied with bread. The saints don't always shout for joy. In many cases, many shout with pain and suffering. God's enemies don't yet know shame. Therefore, we walk with a foot in two worlds. We must always live with double vision, as it were. Eyes on the here and now, but eyes knowing where we are going. These verses aren't our reality yet, but we know that it is coming. We know that the joy set out before it before is that one day we'll be in Zion. We will be there. Look at the joy in this journey. We're heading to a city where God is, where he's dwelling in his fullness and majesty, holiness and love. His radiance, his purity, his magnificence. There's abundant provision. The poor are fed, they're satisfied. Each person has exactly what they need. There will be joy and endless delight. In verse 17, Jesus is the horn that is to sprout for David. His strength, Jesus will be at the very center. When we reach that city, we'll know that God's enemies will be defeated. And Jesus' crown will shine brighter than any sun. So for the pilgrims, as they returned from exile and sung the psalm, in a way they were waiting for two stages of fulfillment. But for us, we wait for only one, Christ's return. And where do these verses find their fulfillment? Well, let's have a look at Revelation chapter 21. If you have a chance, feel free to flick forward. But if not, let me read this. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from them the spring of the water of life without payment. To the the one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the fulfillment of these verses. This is where we are heading, where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, no more death, when everything is made new. Is that not amazing? What a hope. In Zion, we see the magnificent grace of God, gift of grace from God to man, that through Jesus Christ, who is sitting on the same throne that David sits on, in which we see these verses from Psalm 132 fulfilled, where it is worked out in Jesus, And we can have confidence in God's promise that God reigns and that Jesus reigns and that Jesus reigns forever. Psalm 132 reminds us that we can be confident in the truth that God is reigning now. Even when our everyday realities might say something very different. And it points us forwards. 
towards the coming reality where it will be abundantly clear that God reigns, where the kingdom of God will be fully established in the new creation, and not just in the glimmer or foretaste we have now. What a hope that is and what a joy it is to sing this psalm with those returning from exile, focused on the future hope that's coming. Let me pray.